0: The scripture reading this morning is from John 11, verses 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world.
1: Let's pray for our time in the word. Father, we thank you that you are the living God. We thank you that you are the God who spoke all things into being simply by the words of your power and by the force of your very being. We thank you, Father, that you are a just God who allowed death to enter into the world because of sin. And we thank you that you are a gracious God who sent your only begotten Son into the world so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And we thank you for the power of the story that Lies before us, Lord, this whole thing took place only over a few days, but it's a microcosm of what's true for every believer on this planet and throughout history. And so we pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes now. We pray that you would open our ears. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have to say to us. We pray that you would minister your truth to us. We pray that you would minister your power to us. We pray that you would build faith in us, Lord, that we would look to you and believe that we would increase today in our ability to trust in you and to know that when you are ready, you will exercise your power in a final way and death will be no more. Please help us, Lord. Please come now and draw near to us and build our faith even as you built the faith of these precious people in those days. We ask for this and we thank you for this in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In obedience uh, to his Father, And by the grace of his Father, Jesus Christ escaped the deadly grasp of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and went out to the east, across the Jordan, back to the place where John the Baptist was baptizing at first, back to the place where he himself had been baptized by John. There, you may remember that people flocked to Jesus, and there they believed in Jesus, and there Jesus no doubt instructed them for a period of about three months but when Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus had fallen ill, and when he heard that Lazarus's family wanted him to come back to Judea, to the town of Bethany, to be with the family and comfort the family, he took this as a sign, not from that family, but from his father, that it was indeed time to return to the promised land. It was indeed time to head back to Judea. It was indeed time to begin his direct march to the cross. In verses three and five, you'll notice and perhaps you'll remember that John tells us how much Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And John, I think, says that this is so because he wants us to know that everything Jesus is about to do is motivated by love. Some things Jesus is going to do in this story are not gonna feel like love. For example, when the Lord heard that Lazarus was so ill, instead of rushing to the scene, he waited back where he was for two more days. We would have expected John to say because the Lord loved this family so much, he dropped everything, he gathered resources, he gathered his disciples, and off they went. And he made it to Bethany as fast as he could. He healed Lazarus, he ministered to the family, everything turned out fine. Something like that probably we would expect, but it said because he loved them, he stayed behind. Because he loved them, if I can put it in these terms, he waited on the timing of his father. So crucial, beloved. Everything Jesus does, here is motivated by love, love for people, love for his Father. Jesus assured his disciples there before he went to Bethany that this story would not ultimately end in death, but that it was intended for the glory of God in that he himself would be glorified in their sight. And having raised the issue of glorification through suffering, Jesus then masterfully, I think, exposed the weakness of his disciples' faith so that he could set this whole scene up. His his entire purpose in chapter 11 is to build people's faith through the demonstration of his glory. Through the revelation of his being, he means to build their faith and he means to build our faith as well. In the first 17 verses of John 11, I just think the Lord masterfully set all that up, or the first 16 verses. I just think it was amazing to watch how he so carefully set the scene, so to speak. His disciples were understandably reluctant to follow him to Judea because they knew that they they would be facing death. There they would be facing the deadly plots of the Jews who tried not once or twice, but several times to come after Jesus and arrest him. And surely their intention in arresting him was to kill him. And at least twice they actually went to pick up stones and kill him right there on the spot. For the disciples, this was not a a theoretical issue of following Jesus, uh, taking up their cross and following Jesus. You know, for them, their lives were literally on the line, and they were reluctant to go. But by faith, they decided to follow their master. And in two days' time, they arrived at the outskirts of the city of Bethany. There, they found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, which means, of course, that Lazarus had been dead for four days. Now, the reason that this is so important is, as I said last week, there was a folklore among the Jewish people. This was not a biblical idea, but it was greatly believed in the society that a person's spirit would hover over their body for two or even three days after death so that in two or three days, the spirit could return to the body, the body could be resuscitated, and the person could live. But Jews universally believed that by the fourth day, a dead person was in fact dead. And so it's very important, John keeps pressing on this point. He was dead for four days. He was dead for four days. He later, he'll refer to him as the man who died, and not just to Lazarus. He wants us to understand that Lazarus was dead, and he was really dead. This is very important, otherwise the story doesn't work. The, the revelation of glory is not there if Lazarus was not in fact dead. Since Bethany was located on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, only two miles away from Jerusalem. Many Jews came to comfort Martha and Mary in their grief. The Greek word here for console means to come close to someone's side. It literally means to come right along the side of them and, and, and walk along with them, which is a beautiful picture of consolation. We're going to see later in this text that true consolation does more than provide a ministry of presence However, I want to say here that true consolation does not do less than provide a ministry of presence. Sometimes when people are grieving, when they're hurting, when they have experienced a, a tragedy like the untimely and unexpected death of a younger brother, they just need you to be there with them. They just need you to stand there with them. They just need you to cry with them. They just need you to listen to them. They just need you to, to be So the ministry of presence is very important and this particular word means that. The the Jews just came alongside and they wept with those who wept. They cried out to the Lord with those who were nearly paralyzed by grief. Now that many people came out to see this family is a subtle sign. To us it's hard to catch, but to any Jew in that time it would be an obvious sign that this family was well-to-do. So when you think of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, don't think of a poor family. Think of a very wealthy family. And maybe later in, the, in our series on John, I'll talk a little bit about the function of Bethany in that whole part of the world. But Bethany was sort of a, a city where the elite of the country lived. And so these people were well-to-do. And, and that Martha was the first to hear that Jesus came to town. Surely means that she was the oldest sister. There are other places where we see this as well. It's pretty certain that that was her position in the family. But the picture is this. When the news came, Jesus is, is approaching Bethany. Somehow that news got to Martha before it got to anybody else. Probably means she's the eldest sister. She wanted some time alone with Jesus. And so when she heard this news, she snuck out of the house. She went outside of the town. She met him somewhere on the outskirts of Bethany And when she laid eyes on him, she cried out in her grief. And I think she probably literally cried out in her grief. And she said in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She might have meant, Lord, if you had come as soon as you heard the news, he wouldn't have died. She may also have simply meant, Lord, why did you ever leave Judea in the first place? Why did you flee the promised land? Why did you leave us alone? Lord, where did you go? Why did you go? Why were you not here? Surely you're the Lord of life. Surely you could have seen this coming. Why were you not here, Lord? Just pray that you'll hear her heart underneath, beloved, and I pray that you'll see the heart of Jesus in just receiving her words. You'll notice throughout this story, he never rebukes her. He never rebukes anybody for their grief here. They are hurting, and I praise God that he's the kind of God to whom we can share our grief and with whom we can process our grief. She felt that her hope was in the physical presence of Jesus and she was experiencing a lot of pain specifically because of his absence, his chosen absence. And yet, in the midst of her pain, she added this in verse 22. She said, but even now, even that my brother has died, even now that he has died, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Oh, it's hard to know exactly what she meant by that. But doesn't that sound to you like she has some hope that Jesus might still bring him back to life? It sounds like she's still clinging to the fact that he is in power over all things and he still might act on behalf of this family. Maybe she wasn't expecting him to raise Lazarus from the dead, but maybe what she was saying is, you can somehow make good out of the situation. It's hard to know exactly what was on her mind, but it's easy to see That in the midst of her grief, in the midst of her pain, and even in the midst of her questioning of Jesus, she still has faith in Jesus. She's still looking to Jesus. She's still hoping in Jesus. She's still bowing her life down before Jesus. There is not a necessary contradiction, beloved, between deep grief and deep faith. There's not. Deep faith has to work its way through deep grief. But I want you to see this. You have a God in the Lord Jesus Christ, who will hear your pain and receive your faith at the same time. What a, what a gracious, gracious Savior. Interestingly, in verse 23, Jesus actually told her exactly what he was gonna do. He said, your brother will rise again. Of course, she didn't understand what he was saying, and she didn't ask. She just said in verse 24, Lord, I know that he will rise again on the last day, uh, on, in the resurrection on the last day. She was saying, Lord, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. That was a, a disputed belief in her day. It was a belief that Jesus held. It was a belief that Jesus taught. And Martha is saying, Lord, I believe what you have said. I have heard what you have taught, and I believe what you have said. I believe what the scriptures say. I believe that death will not be the final words in my life brother's life. I believe that, but can't you hear underneath her profession of faith, which I think was sincere, which I think was earnest, I think she's still saying, but Lord, why did he have to die in this way? Why did he have to die at this time? Lord, I know that he'll be raised then, but I need hope now. I need comfort now. I want my brother now. Lord, why have you allowed him to suffer this? Lord, where were you? That's what I hear underneath her words. Perhaps I'm Reading too much in, but I don't think I am. Jesus was pleased to hear Martha's heartfelt confession of faith, and surely he was moved by her emotions. Surely our Savior is not an unfeeling Savior. We're going to see that more directly in a few moments. But he also wanted to stretch her faith, he also wanted to strengthen her faith by helping her to understand things that she thought she already understood. Now that's real key right there, beloved. A lot of what's happening in this story is Jesus is bringing people into a place of belief with regard to things that they, to some extent, already believed. He's working on the faith of those who already have faith. And so, with that in mind, he breathed out the fifth of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Now most of you will remember that the names I am are not just random words. The words I am are not just random words. They're drawn from the sacred name of God revealed in the Old Testament, which is Yahweh, which is the Hebrew way of saying I am. It's a little bit difficult to translate it. It can be I was, I am, I will be, I will be what I am, I am what I will be. Any form of, the, of, of that verb for being is what this name means. He, he is life, I, I am So when Jesus takes the words, I am, and applies them to himself, he is not just trying to help us understand a a characteristic about him. He's actually making a claim to be God. And it's not hard to see in this case at all because he says, I am what? I am resurrection and I am life. Please note, he did not say, I grant resurrection. He did not say, I grant life. He said, I am resurrection, I am life after death. I am life conquering death. And I, in fact, am life itself. This is why he goes on to say, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It says more literally in the Greek, it says shall never die forever. I am the life. Jesus did not, again, just perform things for people or give them the gift of life as though it's something outside of himself. He gave himself in union with Christ is what causes people to live. Union with the author of life is what causes death to have to give way to life again. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Then look at verse 26. It is an absolutely crucial question in this text and in our lives as well. Do you Believe this, Martha. Last week, we saw that the story of John 11 is about the exaltation of the glory of Christ for the upbuilding of faith. And because that's true, in the first part of this chapter, Jesus raised the issue of faith with his disciples. And just almost as soon as he encountered Martha, what was the issue that he raised? He raised the issue of her faith. Martha, do you believe as I said, beloved, he is straining, striving, working to help his own believe. He's helping people who already have faith truly to have faith, to grow in faith, to increase in faith, to strengthen in faith. Martha's answer to his question is very striking in verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I do believe, what? I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you are the one Who is coming into the world. Like Andrew before her, Martha openly and gladly confessed that Jesus is the Christ. That was a miracle of God. She had eyes to see because God gave her eyes to see who Jesus really is. And like Nathaniel before her, Martha gladly and openly and wholeheartedly confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. And he is the very progeny of the author of life. And again, she received this as a gift of revelation and of speech and of insight. And she said, in confession of many things Jesus taught, when he said in various ways, I am the one that the Father sent into the world, she embraces this and says, yes, you are the one who God was sending. Surely, she didn't understand the meaning of all these things. But beloved, we have to see this is a powerful, a very content-packed, and I think passionate confession of faith. This is real. Martha believes. She is not an unbeliever in the skin of a believer. She is a true believer. She sees profound things in Jesus, even if she doesn't understand them all. But please note That with that question and answer, John has masterfully, and more so, Jesus masterfully put the issue of faith on the table. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe? Everything she said was true of Jesus, but he's asking a slightly different question that she didn't totally understand. And John, probably Jesus himself, must really want us to think about this because notice that the conversation between Martha and Jesus is cut off right here. You don't hear another sentence that transpires between them. It's like the conversation is at the height of its tension. And you want, to, you want Jesus to say or do something to bring it to resolve, but we change scenes. And I think there's intentionality there because that changing of scenes will cause us to say, no, wait a minute, what was that all about? It draws us into the story to think about what Jesus wants us to think about. And I'm persuaded, beloved, that he wants us to think about faith. And this especially is targeted at those who already believe. He wants us to think about the question, do you believe? Now, before we press on in the story, I want to pause here and talk about something because I find Jesus' uh, ways with Martha here to be very instructive. Notice how he was neither hesitant nor afraid to press into issues of faith in the midst of Martha's deep grief. He was not afraid to raise issues of truth and belief while she was almost paralyzed by grief. In our culture, even as I was being trained as a pastor, I was often taught not to deal with issues of faith and truth at the height of someone's grief. I was taught that they didn't need that at that moment. and what they needed was simply a sympathetic ear and a sympathetic hand and sympathetic feet that would walk along with them. And there is some truth to that. But I think we have to look to what Jesus did and to hear what Jesus said and realize that there's more to comfort in the midst of grief than that. Of course we have to be wise. Of course when someone has literally fallen on the ground and crying in tears, that's not the time to go into a theological dissertation with them. And of course there is a way to bring up issues of truth that's loving and a way that's not loving. Of course all that is true. But beloved, a true friend is gonna lead us to Jesus in the midst of suffering. And if they don't, they're not a true friend. If what we believe doesn't mean anything in times of grief, then it doesn't mean anything. Amen? If we don't believe in the truth when we're surrounded by death, then we don't believe in truth. If tragedy strikes and we say, don't bring theology to me, what we're saying is, I, I really don't believe. And now that the chips are down, what I re- what's really in my heart is being exposed. Again, there's a way to bring these issues up in people's lives. There's a way to walk with people, to raise issues of faith, to raise issues of truth. That's better than not. Of course, there's wisdom to be had. I just find it very instructive that Jesus is not afraid to say, in the heart of your grief, Martha, let me lead you to hope. And in order to lead you to hope, I have to raise an issue about you. You believe and you don't believe. And so I have to ask you this question, do you believe, Martha? Do you believe what you believe? And of course, I also do want to note that the Lord is very patient with us on our suffering. The Lord allows us in our suffering to say things that we feel, to express things that are sometimes not even totally true of our hearts. I've experienced a lot of death in my life, and at the pinnacle of some of the grief that I've experienced through the death of my parents and through a brother and some very close friends, I said things in anger toward God that I didn't really mean, it's just I was venting, I was just venting. And I praise God that he's patient enough, that he's kind enough, that he's gracious enough to just receive those barbs and really think nothing of them to just receive them and let them go. He is an amazingly patient and gracious God. But having said that, in the midst of your grief, he's going to lead you to truth because he loves you. So if you're suffering right now, you're going through some difficult thing and God, either through his word or through his people, is trying to point you to truth, don't resist him. Don't push him away. Or as the author of Hebrews said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart Let Jesus speak to you in the midst of your pain because he means for your good and not for your ill. After Martha made her confession of faith in verse 27, Jesus probably told her to go and get Mary because that's what she did at that point. So John's not reporting every single word that was going back and forth between the two, but Jesus probably said, now go get Mary, please. She went back to Bethany She told Mary that Jesus was present and that he wanted to see her. She did this privately because there was a lot of people in their house and I don't think, or I should put it positively, I think that she did not want for them all to come out to Jesus and make a big scene. She was hoping that Mary could get some private time with Jesus just like she had just gotten some private time with Jesus. But probably the way that Mary got up and ran out of the house got everybody's attention and they thought she was gonna go out to the tomb of her brother and mourn And so in order to comfort their close friend, they also uh, rose up and followed her out of the house. And we don't know exactly how many people, but it's tens and tens of people. It could be as much as 100 people, maybe more than 100 people, I don't know. But it's not five, that's for sure. Quite a few people followed her out there. As soon as Mary saw Jesus, just like her sister, she fell at his feet in respect and she repeated her sister's words with grief-filled sincerity. She said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Like Martha, she found her hope in the literal presence of Jesus, in his physical presence, in the ability that he would have had to touch and do something about it. That's where her hope was. And so in his absence, in his chosen absence especially, she felt great pain. And so she said, if you had just been here, Lord, my brother would not have died, now, when a significant person in our lives dies and people gather to mourn, it's common that when uh, another person comes to join the mourning party, that just the entrance of their presence causes a, a fresh round of mourning, if you will. I was thinking a lot this week about when my brother died suddenly at 52 years of age back in 2008. I remember it was a Tuesday morning. I, my, I woke up that morning, my entire sermon just flooded into my mind. This never happens to me. And I actually said to the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry, this one day, I'm, I just am afraid I'm gonna lose all this. So instead of having a quiet time, I'm gonna go right to my computer and write this sermon down before I lose it. And I did. I just, I just wrote it down. And I almost wrote the whole thing in about an hour and a half, two hours, which is extremely unusual. Really, that's the only time at GCF it's ever happened like that. A couple hours later, I got a phone call that my brother died. And I was asked to get on a plane and come out there because I'm, I'm the youngest in the family, but I'm the pastor of the family, right? So I had to get on a plane and go out there. By the time I got there, not all, but most of our family had arrived. And so when I got to my sister's house and I walked in that door, the, the, the mourning over my brother had sort of subsided. But as soon as I caught their eyes and they caught my eyes, everybody just started weeping again. Everybody just started crying because it's a fresh experience of the pain, right? It's a fresh experience that here's our young brother, but our other brother's gone now. He's gone and he's gone. He's not coming back. And there's fresh pain and one starts crying and another starts crying and another starts crying. And I think this is what happened when Mary saw Jesus. As soon as she saw that extremely significant person in her life, she began to weep. And I would say probably even wail. We should not see This series of conversations as stoic conversations is what I'm trying to say, beloved. We should see them as very emotional, very difficult, very profound conversations filled with crying, even with wailing at times. We should hear Mary crying out to the Lord, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Lord, why weren't you here? Lord, where were you? And again, I'm so touched at Jesus' kindness and his patience, he just receives her words. He receives her tears. As if Mary's expressions were not moving enough, John tells us that all the Jews that were there also began to weep. And I've seen this happen before too. When you come into a a place of mourning and one person really starts to cry and cry out loud and express thoughts with their words, other people are touched by their emotion or also by just their own grief and they begin to cry as well. So however large this crowd was, just picture it in your mind. Everybody's weeping now. Everybody is weeping and Jesus is looking on. And when Jesus saw Mary's heart and when he saw the heart of her friends, the ESV says in verse 33 that he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. Most English translations render that verse something like that. The New Living Testament actually gets this one right, or New Living Translation, actually is much closer to the way the Greek reads here. They translate this, uh, a deep anger welled up within Jesus and he was deeply troubled The main verb here for deeply moved means to be angry. It's used several other times in the Scripture. It always means anger. A few times it means to be enraged, like overcome with a righteous anger. That's the word that's used here. He's not just moved in pity. He's feeling angry, a righteous anger. Some commentators feel that Jesus is upset because of Mary's lack of faith, Martha's lack of faith, and the Jews' lack of faith in the light of a difficult situation, but I really have a hard time thinking that that's true. I wanna remind you that John repeatedly tells us how much Jesus loved these people, and I think everything he did was motivated by love, and I think that when he saw their weeping, the thing that he got angry at was death itself. The thing that he got angry at was suffering itself. Who knew the human condition better than Jesus? Who understood the causes of, of death and the consequences of sin more than Jesus. Nobody understood it more than Jesus. But here, he's hanging out with people who are, are, are experiencing an untimely, tragic death of a younger brother who actually had faith in Jesus. And it's a sad situation. They're grieved to the depth of their hearts. And Jesus is angry at the whole thing. He's angry at death. He's angry at suffering. And as the God of life, he has come to strike a blow against it. He feels great passion in his heart. He feels greatly stirred in his heart, but he's not mad at them. He is compassionately standing with them. And I've tried to show you already, of course he cares about their faith. Of course he wants them to believe when the chips are down. When death is staring them in the face, now is the time for them to believe. Of course he cares. But he cares about that compassionately. Never does he rebuke anybody in this story for unbelief keeps raising the issue of faith so that he can build faith. But beloved, I think that deep, deep in his heart, what he is angry about is he's angry about the fact that sin and and death even exist in the first place. Because he was determined to unveil his glory in the midst of this tragedy, he asked them a simple question. He said, where have you laid Lazarus? Verse 34, and they simply answered, Lord, come and see. As they began to make their way to the tomb. Jesus was overcome with emotion and he burst out in tears. It says simply Jesus wept, but probably one commentator suggests that the best way to read this is that Jesus uh, began to weep. He, he, bro- he burst out in tears. For those Greek geeks among us, this is an inceptive heiress, they call it. It's a verb that means something started. I was thinking about this on the way to church this morning. I wonder why in our culture we say he broke down. <laughs> He wasn't breaking down at all. An expression of emotion is not breaking down. An expression of emotion is giving vent to real emotions, real things, real pain, real anger, real resolve to do something about the situation. Jesus was weeping along with them, and Jesus was weeping because he knew that though they had to experience, that though he was about to do something about all this, they had to go through the deep pain of the process. He was weeping because he loved them, beloved. Our good shepherd is a compassionate shepherd. He's so compassionate. He has no obligation whatsoever to enter into our grief, but he does, he does. He's a father that in a way gets down on his knees, looks us straight in the eyes, and cries with us, and grieves with us, and suffers with us. He is a great, good shepherd. On seeing the tears of Jesus, The Jews noticed, you'll see in verse 37 in there somewhere, they noticed how much he loved Lazarus, but they also wondered out loud. They said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Could he have not stopped this? I don't think they were so much throwing stones at Christ. I don't think they were looking for ways to accuse him again. I don't think this is the same group of Jews that are after him in a legal sense. I think these are people who love this family and are there to mourn and grieve. They're just asking the question that really anybody would ask. Maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, but it would be in your mind. If he has so much power, why didn't he do something about this? And surely Jesus knew that the question was there. Surely he, he could have responded to them. But, beloved, I find a place to praise Jesus at this point because what I see here is he's giving people space to vent. He's giving people space to grieve. And this is one thing I do want to say to balance out what I said earlier. In times of grief, in times of tragedy, in times of pain, we do need to lead each other to think about truth and faith, but there's also a place to just be quiet and let people vent. If you've ever been there, if you've ever really suffered, you know that somehow it's like a, a release valve that God has given to us that's actually a gift. And it's such a gift when you have friends that are not afraid of your venting. They can just stand by you and listen to you. And then, of course, when the moment's right, let's pray. Let's think about the scripture. Let's think about faith. True love gives space for grief. When they arrived at the tomb of Lazarus, you'll see in verse 38 it says, Jesus was again deeply moved in his heart. And, it, and that verb again does mean he was deeply angered. It was a deep internal anger. There's just no way that Jesus looked upon that tomb and had anger toward these people for unbelief. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. So this is a place where it becomes obvious to me that his anger again is at death itself. His deep, powerful, passionate stirring of emotion has to do with the whole existence and process and consequences of death. And there, the author of life was was determined to strike a blow against this great enemy. He was determined to reveal his glory and build the faith of all who have eyes to see. In that day, there were different types of graves, but Lazarus's grave was basically a cave. We don't really know how deep it was. There's a cave. You can go to that very area today, and there's a cave that says it was Lazarus's cave. It may have been. It may not have been. It doesn't really matter. It's just a basic cave. And then they put a stone over the face of that cave. And so when Jesus arrived at the tomb and set his eyes upon it, he commanded that that stone be rolled away. But in verse 39, Martha stood up and objected and said, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor for it has already been four days. I can't help but mention one of my favorite King James verses in the Bible at this point. Because if you have a King James Bible, look look there, it says, Lord, by now he stinketh. I just think that's so funny. I'm sorry, this is not a funny moment, but I can't help but mention that. Lord, by now he stinketh. For weeks and weeks and weeks, I've been thinking about why is that mentioned? Why did Martha bring it up? Why did John note it? Because even if she said it, he didn't have to report it. Why is this here? For Martha, I think it's, she's just sharing the facts. He's been in there four days. By fourth day, decomposition starts to happen. There's a strong odor. It's a powerful odor you will never forget. Please don't open that door. It's going to stink. It's going to be overwhelming. For John, I think, again, as I said earlier, he wants us to know that Lazarus was dead and that everybody in that area knew this guy is dead and he's really dead. dead. There's no hope of resuscitation. He's already decomposing. John wants to establish the fact the man is not living. Now, as for why bodies emit such a foul odor when they decay, I'm sure that scientists among us could give us descriptions, but God could have made it a different way. Death did not literally have to stink, but it does. It stinks powerfully. I was a police chaplain for four years in Northern California, and I went on many death calls Two or three of those times over the four years, the bodies had been there for a while. And I'm just going to tell you, when you smell that smell, you will be overwhelmed with it. A lot of people can't handle, can't keep their stomachs when they smell it. And you will never forget that smell. It is a powerful, overwhelming smell that gets blazed into your memory. Why is that? I think God gave us a gracious sensory sign of the horror of death. I think that's why death stinks so bad. Because emotionally and spiritually, death stinks. It's horrible. Death is horrible. It's horrible. Not long ago, a brother in our very midst went to be with the Lord several years ago. And I praise God for him. I praise God that he's happy in the presence of Jesus. But his death was horrible. Was horrible. Death in itself is not good. Jesus will make good come out of death, but death itself is horribly odorous. It's not good. And God, I think, has given us a gracious sign of how horrible it is so that we'll walk away from the things that cause death. Despite Martha's understandable objection, Jesus graciously asked her in verse 40 Did I not tell you, Martha, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Please notice that in the heat of such powerful emotions and of uncertainty, Jesus again boldly raised the issue of faith in the life of Martha, now in the hearing of everybody. Now he's uh, craftily, I mean wisely is what I mean by that. He's in a skillful way raising the issue of faith for everybody there. Neither Martha, nor the disciples, nor the others that were standing there could have learned the kind of thing that he was about to teach them by reading a book, even by reading the Bible. You couldn't take a class on faith that would teach you what they were about to learn. They had to go through the experience of tragedy and then witness with their eyes the God of life overcoming tragedy. And so Jesus again says, did I not tell you, did I not tell you that if you only believed, if you'd only exercise faith, you would see the manifestation of the glory of God. Did I not say this to you, Martha? Now, if you're an astute reader, you'll look back up earlier in the story and say, but Jesus never said that to Martha, so what's he talking about? In fact, his words here are more reminiscent of what he said to the disciples in verse four, I believe it is. But remember that John didn't record every single sentence that went back and forth between Martha and Jesus, and so I think probably Jesus did reiterate to Martha the things he had said to his disciples. He did bring up to her the issue of glory and the issue of faith, and now that they're there, now that they're at the tomb, he wants to rise, raise the issue again because he's about to bring it all home. Now next week, we're going to see that many unbelievers came to believe through the act of grace and power that Jesus is about to perform. But for now, I want us to understand again that he is ministering to people who already have faith. He's helping people to believe, to believe, that already believe, to believe. He is trying to cause people to grow in their actual experience and trust and apprehension of God as their father. And so before we press on, I do wanna just pause here and say to you again, beloved, that if you are enduring suffering in your life and Jesus wants somehow to glorify himself and build your faith through it, do not resist him, do not push him away. You might question him and say, is this really the best plan? Is this the best thing you, the God of the universe, could think of? He may need to vent a time or two, and thank God he is so patient to receive it, but at the end of the day, the answer is yes, yes. The plan that he made for your life is the best plan that there could possibly be for your life. Yes, the answer is yes. And someday you will see it with your eyes. So like them, do you believe? Did Jesus not tell you that if you would simply believe, he would show you his glory? Every difficulty is an opportunity for faith for the one who will surrender to Christ. When the stone had been rolled away from that grave, Jesus lifted up his head to heaven and he prayed so that Martha and Mary and the disciples and all the others could hear him. Please look at verses 41 and 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me, past tense. I knew, past tense, that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may, what, believe that you sent me. In other words, Father, thank you for purposing to exalt my glory in the eyes of these people so that they might come to have faith and thus have eternal life. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to show them, not just tell them, but show them that I am the resurrection and I am the life forever. And when he had prayed these things, he most likely fixed his eyes on that tomb. And he said with the tears glistening still off of his cheeks, he said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. A second went by, 10 seconds went by, probably 30, 60 seconds went by. Time went by, there was silence. But to everybody's amazement, here came Lazarus coming out of the tomb with his feet bound and his hands bound and his face wrapped in a burial cloth Basil, uh, an an ancient Bible commentator, said that this was a kind of a miracle within a miracle because a man that was bound for death should not have been able to walk at all. But, But probably he, Basil, had more in mind the Egyptian way of wrapping bodies. In this culture, they wrapped bodies a little bit more loosely, so it certainly would have been difficult for a dead man to get up being bound for death, but he did, and he walked out of that tomb. I don't think it was a miracle within a miracle. I think it was the miracle itself. A dead man rose from the dead and he walked out of his tomb bound as he was with calm confidence and with joy Jesus then said in verse 44 unbind him powerful words oh who has the authority to say that about a dead man unbind him and let him go loose the man who has died from the bonds of death I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me will never die forever. Beloved, do you believe this? Do you see this? In verses 25 through 26, Jesus made this claim. I am the resurrection and the life. In verses 41 through 44, he proved it. In verses 41 through 44, he gave a a demonstration. He gave evidence. He gave proof. He's not a teacher to this day. He's not a teacher that goes around making truth claims with nothing to back it up. Like the Apostle Paul said, we did not just come to you with fancy words, but we came to you with the, the, the very power of the Holy Spirit that transforms life and that, yes, sometimes even heals and that, yes, sometimes even brings dead people back from the dead. Jesus said in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, if you want to look there quickly, 10, 17, and 18, For this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus first showed his power over death by raising Lazarus to life. Not too long after, it's, it's really probably only a week and a half or so after, he's going to do the same thing, but this time he's going to do it to himself. Tell me, who do you know who's ever raised a person from the dead? Answer, no one. Who do you know who's ever raised themselves from the dead? No one but Jesus Christ. That's the answer to that question. And you might object and say it was the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. And I would say amen to that. The Father did raise Jesus from the dead. But look at chapter 10. Jesus says, I take my life up again. The God of life has power over death even when he is the physical one who died, raised himself back to life. Beloved, the question is, do you believe this? Do you believe in the resurrecting power of the Lord Jesus Christ in whom you believe? In some ways, the story of John chapter 11 is, is frustrating rather than encouraging because of this. This tragedy and the solution of the tragedy happened in such a short time. You're talking about a matter of days. From the time he grew sick to the time he was raised from the dead, it probably was no more than 10 days, 12, 15 days at the most. Some of our sufferings don't last 10 or 12 days, right? Some of our sufferings last months and years and even decades, sometimes a, a lifetime. And so it can seem uh, frustrating to look at this story and say, Lord, why don't you deliver me that quickly and that powerfully? And I just want to say the Lord doesn't do the same thing for everyone at all times. But he gave this story to us as a gift. And you know what that gift is? This is a picture of your destiny if you believe in Jesus Christ. This is a picture of what's going to happen to you eventually. Death And suffering will not be the final word in your life. God will use tragedy, he will use suffering, he will even use death to magnify his glory and build the faith of all who see it. Beloved, do you believe? In the midst of your difficulty and suffering, do you believe, do you see Jesus as your resurrection and as your life? That's the question. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, I put this up there so you wouldn't have to turn to it, But please listen with your hearts. Listen to what he said. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Not my thinking, Paul says, but this is coming from the Lord himself, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, which is to say those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Come out! With the voice of an archangel, And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Beloved, I am foggy on some of how these details are gonna work out, but I believe that Jesus means what he says and I believe that one day he will rise us all from the dead. Do you believe, beloved, This is the words of your God. Do you believe what you believe? Whatever your answer, the fact of the matter is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And our faith won't make him more that. Our lack of faith won't make him less than that. He is the resurrection and the life. And he will glorify his name forever by abolishing death forever when he's good and ready to do so. At the perfect time. He will offer the death blow to death, and we will all see it with our eyes, and we will all praise his name. Revelation 21, 3 through 7. Again, I put this up here for you. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, that is the throne of God, saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them, physically with them, not absent, with them as their God. And he will what? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall what? Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning anymore. Neither shall there be crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payments Eternal life is not cheap, but it is free to all who believe. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he will glorify his name by conquering death so that we who believe in him will never die. Beloved, do you believe this? Let's pray now that God will help us, and then let's rise to sing to his great name. Our Father, I thank you with all my heart, not only for the end of this story, but for the process that is this story. I thank you that you allow your people to descend into the suffering that we have caused by our sin so that we can see the power of your grace and the power of your right hand, so that we can see that life will not ultimately be overcome by death. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, as each of us meditates on this story and as our community groups and families meditate on this story together. I pray that you would give us deep insight into these things. I pray that you would help us in our suffering. I pray that you would exalt your glory in our suffering. I pray that you would build our faith through our suffering. And I pray that you would use this story to do these things as well. Help us, Lord, to see your glory and believe. Help us, our Father, to believe. And I thank you, Father, with all of my heart that whatever the state of our belief, you are going to do everything that you determine to do. You are going to exalt your glory by putting death to death when you're good and ready. And so we thank you, Father, by faith and in advance. We thank you for what you will do, for when you will do it, and for how you will do it. In the mighty, in the merciful, in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.